Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Philip K. Howard. He is the founder of Common Good and author of many books, including The Rule of Nobody, Saving America from Dead Laws and Broken Government, The Death of Common Sense, How Law is Suffocating America, and The Collapse of the Common Good, How America's Lawsuit Culture Undermines Our Freedom. The topic today is his latest book entitled Try Common Sense, Replacing the Failed Ideologies of Right and Left. Welcome, Philip. Thank you for joining us. Nice to be with you, Mark. All right. Well, let's jump right at the start uh, of the book. On the first page, you say, quote, that voters are so fed up with overbearing government that they were ready for a change at almost any price. Uh, so you, you think this was strongly on their minds in, in 2016. Uh, did, did the Obama administration really aggravate that feeling, or has it sort of been more of a long, a long time coming? Well, I think it's both, actually. Um, remember, Obama got elected in 2008. He'd only burst onto the national scene the year before, and getting elected for the Senate or two years before. And uh, and he promised change we can believe in, right? And so here you have this incredibly smart, attractive, African-American, young person who's promising change. If anybody can make change, he can. Well, it didn't happen. Um, he got the Affordable Care Act through, but government basically worked exactly the same as it did before. So... Eight million Obama supporters turned around and voted for Donald Trump. Now, now nobody's under the illusion that Donald Trump is George Washington. Uh, but he, but he, you know, he promised, if nothing else, he's a bully, and he promised that he was going to drain the swamp and, you know, blow things up. So I think it was, at least for many voters, a vote against Washington and a sort of the accumulation of decades of frustration with with Big Brother. I remember when Rusty and I in the office watched Donald Trump's inauguration speech, and he really did declare 
war on both sides. You had the Clintons up there and the Obamas and the Bushes up there, and he he directed it at all of them, and he really defined them as the Washington, the D.C. elite, and then the rest of the country. Do you think that has he has he stuck to that? And well, how would you how would you rate his his performance G- given the impossibility? You say later in the book it's impossible to to just drain the swamp within 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 a year or two. But how, are you well? What what do you feel about that that? Project? Yeah, you know, I you know, I think he he comes off as a carnival barker. You know, he's I've known him, Donald Trump a long time. He. Uh, and I've tried to help his administration. I was on a CEO council. I, you know, I wasn't a supporter of his, but, you know, he's president, so I'm trying to be helpful. But um, he he often actually identifies and is willing to say things uh, that are correct. You know, Washington is a swamp. <laughs> it does need to get trained. But, it, but he doesn't actually have any understanding of what that means. Uh, And whereas Obama and his predecessors failed to achieve change we can believe in, because they thought you could manage the swamp, that you could wander into this jungle with pruning shears and, you know, make it work better by being smart. Trump's idea, as far as I can tell, is is that is the old Republican idea of deregulation. You know, let's just get rid of rules. Uh, so let's make the world safe for coal burning power plants. You know, it's one of the regs he, you know, one of the things he undid that Obama was trying to regulate. Well, the reason voters were angry was not because they want coal burning power plants. They're angry because they spend half the day filling out forms that nobody reads. And they're constantly told they can't do something because the rules don't allow it. Or if you're a epidemiologist in the state of Washington, you're not allowed to test for COVID-19 until you get go through three or four weeks or longer of approvals from Washington. Meanwhile, the virus is spreading. You know, it's it's that kind of thing that drives people crazy. It's kind of the operations of government. It's not, you know, it's not because we want more pollution or you know, or some of the other things that government tries to do. You you mentioned the management issue. Uh, that that's one of the criticisms you mentioned later in the book about Michael Bloomberg, whom you admire, but who said. He came into the campaign several months back now, believing that the reform of Washington was primarily a management problem. And that's a dead end at this point. Yeah, it's a dead end because um, uh, it's, you know, there are obviously management problems, but and there are leadership problems, too. But but fundamentally, I argue and try common sense. It's a philosophy problem. We tried to create a a structure of government only in the last 50 years. This is not how government used to work, where we tried to avoid human mistakes by avoiding human judgment altogether. So forest rangers used to have a little pamphlet telling them how to do their jobs. And there was a famous study by Herbert Kaufman in the um, 50s about how incredibly effective they were at doing that. Now they had volumes of rules to tell them how to do things. And if 
and if the decision had to be made, you had to go through a sort of a procedural gauntlet to make sure that no mistake was made. Again, going back to COVID-19, there was a column by Brett Stevens in the New York Times recently where some Obama official, former Obama official working on a um, food for the poor children program. And when the schools shut down, they said, oh, yes, we can convert that program to to provide for uh, for the you know needy students, even if they're not in school. Uh, so we'll waive that requirement. But then the waiver process itself takes months. You know, and they won't waive it until you come up with a plan. Well, how will you identify the needy students? I mean, it's like this, you know, so instead of of letting people roll up their sleeves and do the job and be accountable if they screw it up somehow or another, you, you have this kind of endless process that goes on. So you can't. That's a philosophical problem. The problem is we don't let people take responsibility and nothing will work. I mean, nothing in mankind, nothing in the history of mankind works unless a human actually <laughs> grabs something by the hand and you know, with their hands, it makes it work. And this is what you term the fixation on correctness. OK, getting these tiny little rules right. Yes, that's right. We, we have this belief that somehow it's a rationalistic notion. It's like a perversion of the worst parts of the kind of enlightenment where they thought they could figure out everything in advance. And there was a law of nature and a law of this and a law of that. Uh, and we have this idea that nobody should make a choice if the in the public sector or that's at all related to any government policy unless it is, quote, correct. Well, What's a, you know, life's too complicated. There are too many trade-offs all day long. You know, how do you, how do you run a classroom? You know, you have different students have different needs. You've got to balance one against the other. How do you manage the emergency room? You know, you have to have triage with people of different needs and you have to make choices. How do you, you know, how do you do anything that's at all subtle or <laughs> difficult? You have to balance one interest against another. You have to make moral judgments. I mean, mor morality is really important in public life. And and what happens when you have this rigid system of correct rules is that people game it. And they game it to get ahead. And it happens all, you, you know, we see it all the time. People bring lawsuits just as tools for extortion. They, they make claims uh, for entire, there's something on the news hour the other day about special ed students. There is one mother on saying that her child requires seven to 10 attendants a day to get the proper education, as if that were kind of a natural entitlement because there was a law that said you get an individualized education if you have special needs children. Seven to 10 attendants. Well, what does that say about resources available to all the other students, you know, uh, you know, and at this point, special ed is consuming, give or take 30% of the entire K to 12 budget in this country. That's an outrage. But the, the law 
you know, the 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 disability, the 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 entitlement law, it's down, it's it's on, it's in writing, and so no official would step in and say and, and sort of sort of try to exercise some independent judgment about a situation like that because we've laid it out, we've created the rules, and bureaucrats really like that. They can avoid personal responsibility for decisions because they're saying, look, I didn't make the law. I'm just applying it. And that's they like right. that, so, right? That's right. So all of Washington, if you ask the question about why do schools fail, who's responsible for the fact that healthcare costs so much? And people look at each other, gee, I don't know. This, you know, the rule made me do it. You know, <laughs> the system is at fault. You know, there's no we've created this entirely unaccountable system because nobody has responsibility to make anything work. Why is this school so lousy? I don't know. You know, it's like, ah, you know, you pull out your hair. Um, so the the system manifestly is designed for failure because it doesn't let people take responsibility. You look at how New York hospitals coped with the coronavirus and the only way they could cope with it, and Andrew Cuomo was great about this, is that they threw away the rule books. <laughs> Nothing they did was lawful. They couldn't, they couldn't, you know, build the new temporary facilities. They couldn't do telemedicine. They couldn't use this brand of disinfectant versus that brand of disinfectant. There was a rule that said if you're transporting a disabled person, you have to do it with the same gender uh, attendant. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a complicated question nowadays. What's your gender? Um, and so. Uh, so they waive that. I mean, it's government is like a melted circuit board of overlapping rules. No one designed it. They just kept piling these circuits on top of each other with each rule year after year. Again, only since the 1970s, and it 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 can't it can't be led. It can't be repaired. It has to be replaced. You have a great first line in your second chapter. It says, quote, Washington has given up on governing. Now, so the government has given up on governing. Is that correct, Philip? Yes, it is correct. They're not trying to govern. They're just trying to beat each other. Right, right. Now, you've spent a lot of time working with legislators. You have, you, you've been to the White House a few times. You, you, you talk about a scene in 2015 where you went in and tried to help the Obama administration in terms of streamlining some government processes, and you just keep hitting a wall on on these matters. What is the le what what is going on in the mind of the legislator when the burden of governing comes up now and then? What are they thinking? Um, well, I think legislators, members of Congress, uh, once I'm friendly with, are very frustrated. They don't really disagree with 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 what I'm saying. Um, they, um, you know, they see the system as paralytic. They, um, anytime you try to make just a little change, you know, some try to get rid of some hundred year old subsidy that makes no sense. Something called the Jones Act from 1920 that makes shipping be by 
U.S. flag carriers, and it dramatically raises the cost of intra-country shipping, you know, like a ship from New York to Houston, say. Um, but there's a vested interest group that makes money on that, and it's not a front-page issue. So the way, so the way Congress works is all you have to get is all you have to do is basically pay off a few congressmen, and you can stop anything from happening. So, um, so Washington, so the legislature has become a kind of engine of the status quo, and um, it's gotten worse as the bureaucratic state has gotten thicker, and most commentators, there are all these commentators, George Packer and some other, Ezra Klein and others writing, column, you know, essays now about the dysfunction of the political system, which I agree is dysfunctional. But I actually think it's, it's not the cause of our problem, but a symptom of the problem. That it's when people gave up trying, when they figured out it was, un, they were unable to get anything done because of this dense melted circuit board of bureaucracy, then they just started pointing fingers and blaming each other. And, and so the natural tendency of, of politicians to point fingers then became the only game in town. So now it's just, uh, you know, it's just complete, it's, everything's phony. Everybody in the system is phony. They just, anything that happens that's bad, they blame the other side. <laughs> And, and you note that the executive branch just doesn't take Congress seriously because they have abdicated their responsibility for things. And they, they, they hold hearings that are really just theater for them to present themselves in certain ways to their constituents. Does this leave the executive branch, the ones who are really setting so many policies, that we all have to live by? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, the only branch that really functions uh, is the is the judiciary, because they're presented with cases and controversies and they have to make a decision. Um, the executive branch is uh, semi-functional, but again, generally only in the direction of the status quo. And uh, as you identified earlier on, there is a cultural problem here, which is that uh, the people who, you know, really well-meaning, smart people who are lifetime public employees um, have it in their minds that the most important thing to do is to avoid making a mistake. So you have these procedures that literally go on forever till people drop, you know, you'll take you know, it's like the the 60 days to approve the methodology for how you identify poor children who get the food. Meanwhile, poor children don't get the food, you know, or I was very involved in, uh, am very involved in infrastructure permitting. And so that meeting I had at the White House in 2015 was about that. And uh, one of the points I calculated the cost of these eight to 10 year permitting processes that double the cost of infrastructure. And not only that, they're, they're dramatically harmful to the environment because they prolong 
these polluting bottlenecks, right? So there's nothing good about this delay. And we're not talking about going back to Robert Moses. You just want to do what other developed countries do, have a year or two process for a big project and then have some environmental review and then approve it or not. And so I was uh, talking to these high-level officials in the White House about this. And um, and I said, well, you know, what you really need are clear lines of authority to make, to, to make decisions about how much environmental review is needed and such. And, and then you can actually enforce timelines. Um, and they're saying, oh, yeah, that's good. And then they said, well, we do have that. And I said, well, who, who has the authority to actually make the decision about uh, how much review is needed, or if there's a dispute among different agencies, you know, who wins or whatever. And they said, oh, well, no, no one has that authority. I said, well, why not? So that would be too dangerous. You know, you go, well, that's just not government. You know, government, you know, a, a society needs traffic cops. You need red light, green light. Uh, and if you don't have traffic cops, what you get is what we have, which is gridlock and people honking their horns and pointing their fingers at each other all day long uh, because we don't have any traffic cops. You trace the problem in, in, in part back to the training of, of lawyers. You write, this is in a section entitled, Restoring a Human Rule of Law, quote, every law school for 50 years has taught its students that public law is about guaranteeing correctness through detailed rules individual rights and due process, minimizing human authority, legal mandarins have told us, results in a purer form of the rule of law. Are there, is there, is there any growing awareness that this you know, microscopic rulemaking and correctness, and you, you really call it later on a utopian dream of trying to get everything prescribed is and has produced Disaster. Yeah, it's, it's, it has it truly produced a disaster. You know, the people who were smartest about this, who saw it coming, were people like Huxley, you know, Brave New World, or some philosophers like Hannah Arendt um, uh, or Hayek or others. It, 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 you can't create an automatic system of government. It's a profoundly human enterprise and you can't create an automatic system of law. Um, somebody brings a lawsuit for $54 million against the dry cleaners because they lost a pair of pants. Now, that's a real case uh, in Washington. And uh, the case went on for two years. So the guy finally left, lost, it's obvious. And then he appealed it and he kept saying it's the most outrageous example of injustice he's ever seen, you know, whatever. And uh, the people who were sued, who were Korean immigrants, had to close down their dry cleaning shop uh, because of all the legal fees. Um, it, you know, it kind of ruined them. I think they had two shops that closed down one of them. The, um, how should that be handled? Uh, the case gets brought. There's the first hearing in court. And the judge says, maybe you have a claim in small claims court for $100 for your lost pair of pants, but not in a court of general jurisdiction for millions of dollars. Case dismissed without prejudice to refiling small claims court. Now, that's not that's not hard to do. It takes, I don't know how long it took me, 30 seconds. But 
But judges, like officials, don't have the idea that they can do that. They don't have the idea that part of their job is actually to to assert and enforce norms of reasonableness in order to protect everybody's freedom. (laughs) So if you have a system where nobody's allowed to make a value judgment, pretty soon you have a system that's out of control. Indeed. And and everyone who heard about that, I remember hearing about that case. Everyone who hears it says, are we insane? Where is, yeah, where did the common sense? go yeah where did common sense go so where did the common sense go with covid with covid19 you have a a really top-notch researcher who has been studying it since the fall when it you know came out he has a really good well plotted out research uh proposal he sends it to the fda it has to get approved and they days later write back saying you have to submit it in written form I mean, you know, truly. So again, you can't make this stuff up. And so, so what's, yeah. Do, do extreme time, are these extreme times going to purify us of some of this nonsense? What's needed is a new narrative about human responsibility and accountability, about giving people back the right to do what's right. And that requires liberating people to act on their best judgment and liberating other people to hold them accountable. It is the philosophy on which our country was founded, if you go back and look at how the constitutional structure. Uh, but it's one that we lost sight of in, during our lifetime. And, um, and there's no narrative right now public narrative along the lines of what we're talking about. The, uh, w- we went back and looked at every question asked in the Democratic debates for this election cycle. There was not one question on making government work more effectively or dealing with the alienation and frustration of voters. Um, so so what we're doing at this, at my, I'm chair of a not-for-profit called Common Good, commongood.org. What, what, what we're doing is um, we're organizing, we haven't launched yet, a, what we're calling a campaign for common sense that's designed this year, in 2020, to, uh, to introduce into public debate the idea that we need to, uh, to, to reboot this system to re-empower humans at all levels of responsibility. We're out building- Give, give us the information, uh, Philip, give, give the information to our listeners again about how they can find out more about that. Um, well, the website is campaignforcommonsense.org. It will be launched sometime in the next couple of weeks or they could go to commongood.org uh, and sign in now. And uh, and we've gotten a lot of prominent um citizens, I mean, Nobel Prize winners, people like Mitch Daniels and Bill Bradley and Al Simpson, uh, you know, signing on to this, leading experts in different, you know, areas of society, psychologists, Jonathan Haidt, uh, political scientists, Paul Light and Don Kettle, you know, a lot of prominent people are signing on because the entire narrative is in the wrong direction. You know, everybody's so obsessed with the carnival barker that they can't see that he too is only a symptom. 
is a symptom of this incredible society-wide frustration uh, with this system that doesn't give us the dignity of waking up in the morning and making a difference. It drives people nuts. You, you know, so, so last question. One of your major recommendations is, quote, move government, move federal government out of Washington, D.C. Now, the Trump administration has moved one office. Is it the Department of the Interior that they have moved out to Grand Junction or they're proposing to move out to Grand Junction, Colorado? Is that a sign that if if Trump wins in November, do you think that you can get access to the administration on this issue? Uh, yes. And, you know, and I think there are actually a lot of smart people who 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 work for Trump. It's a little hard to control him, you know, obviously. So there's some level of frustration there. But um, but the bottom line and this is this is true generally of any significant change, social change. Yeah, it comes from the outside. It's not going to come from the inside. And so the, 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 the progression is we build a public narrative of the need to reboot Washington, to re-empower people to take responsibility. That narrative happens. The more people we get involved with that narrative, then we go to advisors to both candidates this year. And uh, and this gives them cover to talk about it, and also an articulated vision, right? So, uh, but by the way, we're going to roll out our own presidential platform, 15 plank platform, for schools, healthcare, you name it, because the the parties aren't going to do it, and we're going to get leading experts then to debate each part of our platform. We're not trying to get people to agree to it. We're trying to get people to, you know understand the possibilities of what happens if you actually let people make decisions. So if you get the narrative going and people seem enthusiastic about the narrative, I think people are hungry for it, then then whoever gets elected, there's wind behind them and the change can happen. And that's that's our that's our goal. I have to ask one more question. You note near the end of the book about the strong inbred culture of Washington, D.C. How much will the insiders resist? Or, or are some of them impatient? So, so they're not impatient to change anything. You know, there are many members uh, of Congress who would be sympathetic to this. There are many people who work for government. In fact, if you go to any agency that works tolerably well, you will find people who ignore the rules because <laughs> that's the only way you can get anything done. So, so there are plenty of people in Washington who will be sympathetic, but there were probably more people who will resist it. And the bottom line there is you have to be able to fire them. And I talk about that in the book and I talk about how you do that. And, um, uh, the bottom line is, in life, not just in Washington, if people don't want to, you know, pursue the goals that make the institution work, they should go off and do something else with their lives. And and that's the only way you can get around this inbred culture. It is truly an inbred culture. I mean, and that's the reason reform never happens. 
Um, reform doesn't happen like the Jones Act in 1920 because any person can block it. So the, the political science say that change never happens reform by reform. It happens in big gulfs. It happens in the 1960s when we got civil rights, environmental laws, all that happened in one decade. It happens in the 1930s when we get social safety nets. It happens in, in the progressive era when we got rid of the philosophy of laissez-faire. It happened in the, during the Civil War. And so we're at one of those points where we need to change the frame of reference for how we govern. And it's only when you get that kind of uh, public support for a new way of doing things that you actually get change to happen. Only then can you beat the special interest groups, for example. The book is Try Common Sense, Replacing the Failed Ideologies of Right and Left, out with Norton. Thank you for joining us. Great to be with you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.